And we're going to read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Again, this is the inerrant, the infallible, life-giving Word of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. The Holy Spirit writes, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs." Now, friends, if you turn to the back of the Trinity Psalter hymnal to the Heidelberg Catechism on page 874, 874, we'll do a responsive reading from the Heidelberg. Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 6, that is questions 16, 17, 18, and 19. I will read the question and then let us answer together. Why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? Because God's justice requires that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for its sin, but a sinner could never pay for others. Why must he also be true God? So that, by the power of his divinity, he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath, and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Then who is this mediator, true God, and at the same time a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given to us for our complete deliverance and righteousness. How do you come to know this? The Holy Gospel tells me. God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. Later he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally he fulfilled it through his own beloved son. Amen. So we are on the second Lord's Day in the grace or the uh, the salvation uh, section of the Catechism. As you well know, the Heidelberg Catechism is broken down into three helpful sections, often called guilt, grace, and gratitude, or sin, salvation, and service. And it's, I think, a very helpful movement for the Catechism As you begin in the catechism with sin, and you begin with, you could say, the bad news, and you contemplate our total depravity and how fallen mankind has become, 
And then you enter into the grace or the salvation section and you behold what Christ has done on our behalf. And then finally, you conclude the catechism by considering the spirit-produced works of gratitude that we do in service to the God that we love. So in the previous Lord's Day, again, that was the first day last week into our second section here. And last week, the Lord's Day showed us that we need a mediator. We need some kind of mediator to pay for our sin debt, that we have a debt that we cannot pay, and we desperately need someone else to pay it. Last week began, or ended rather, by affirming that we need a mediator that is both God and man. And that is where Lord's Day 6 picks up. And as we consider Lord's Day 6, first we will consider the person of Christ. Second, we will consider the plan or the goal of Christ. And finally, the trans-testamental gospel. So first, the person of Christ. The mediator, the Messiah, the Christ who was promised long ago, who had come to, or for our deliverance, the catechism says, must be true and righteous man. Well, this automatically cancels out every human born of Adam. Every human born of Adam is not born true and righteous man. Romans chapter 3, no one is righteous. And in case you didn't hear him, Paul adds the phrase, not even one. No one is righteous. And so that cancels out everybody born of Adam. No human is true and righteous man. And that is why the catechism says a sinner could never pay for others. But we are all sinners, and so we need a sinless man. So there's a tension that I think we see in question 16 of the catechism. A sinner cannot pay for another one's debt, but a man must pay if there's any hope of salvation. Angels cannot pay man's debt. Animals cannot pay man's debt because, as the Catechism again says, it is human nature that has sinned and it is human nature that must bear the debt. So this explains, I think, clearly our mediator. Christ must be true and righteous man. Obviously, we know that Christ is, is God. He, uh, he is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He existed forever. And he could not somehow leave heaven, come to earth completely divine, in order to carry out these things. But it shows that there had to be a taking on of flesh. He had to take on what we are because it was human nature that sinned. We see this throughout Scripture, that Christ was indeed human. He was indeed man. He did indeed take on flesh. 
Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, favor with God and favor with man. Luke chapter 2. Jesus became strong. Luke 2.40. He got tired, John 4, 6. He got thirsty, John 19, 28. He got hungry, Matthew 4, 2. He wept, John 11. He groaned, Mark 8. And also we see throughout the text that Jesus not only did these human acts, but he was indeed human. He was a man. He had a human mind, soul, and will. He took all of humanity on himself. He was tempted throughout his earthly ministry, yet without sin. The humanity of Christ is very central to the gospel because as Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 and Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16 tell us, that which is not assumed is not redeemed. In other words, for Christ to redeem humans, he had to become human. For Christ to redeem our mind, he had to have our mind. He, for him to redeem our will, he had to have our will. And so he took on all that makes us humanity, except for sin, in order to redeem all of us. Not just part of us, not just our flesh, not just our mind, but all of us. As the catechism bears out, being fully human, though, is not enough. You can't stop there. There needs to be a divine power, the catechism says, to bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath. He, he, Jesus couldn't just be a man only, but the God-man. Both are needed in order to bear in his humanity the full weight of God's wrath. I think it was R.C. Sproul who was talking about the cross of Christ, and he, he asked the question to a class, and he said, what do you think was the most painful thing that Jesus experienced? And people talked about, well, it must have been the nails in his hand. It must have been the crown of thorns. It must have been the lashings. It must have been whatever. And, and R.C. Sproul said, no, Jesus, the mo for him, the most painful thing was the wrath of God. He probably didn't even feel the nails in his hand as the Father crushed him, as he experienced hell being poured out upon him on the cross, was, much, was so much more of uh, a painful experience than anything that the centurions and, and uh, the Romans could do to him. He had to have a divine power to bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath. Francis Turretin, he had a great statement in his elect, electic theolo, Institutes of Electic Theology. He said, our mediator ought to be God-man to accomplish these things, he said. Man to suffer, God to overcome. Man to receive the punishment we deserve, God to endure and drink it to the dregs. Man to acquire salvation for us by dying, God to apply it to us by overcoming. Man to bear or become ours by the assumption of flesh, and God to make us like himself in the bestowal of the Spirit. This neither a mere man nor God alone could do, for neither could God alone be subject to death, nor could man alone conquer it. Man alone could die for men. God alone could vanquish death." End quote. 
So the scripture teaches us that Jesus had to be fully God, fully man. And we see this throughout the Bible, that Jesus is in fact God, even though there are some cults today in various sects that will reject the divinity of Christ and say, well, no, no, Jesus wasn't God. Jesus was maybe the highest created being. Of course, that is heresy. The scriptures are clear that Jesus is God. Titus 2.13 calls Jesus God and Savior. Hebrews 1.3 that we read says he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole, the, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And we all know that great statement of Christ in John 8 when he says, before Abraham was, I am and he showed himself to be God throughout his, throughout his work and ministry. He showed himself to be all-knowing. He showed himself to be all-powerful. He showed himself to be God. And this too protects the gospel. We must have a Savior that is fully man. Again, what, he doesn't, what is not assumed is not redeemed. But he also had to be fully God, because as Jonah 2.9 says, salvation is of the Lord, not of man. The Bible is clear. Jesus is fully God and fully man in one person. In other words, Jesus has two natures. One nature is human. The other nature is divine. The, the divine nature does not change the human nature. The human nature does not change the divine nature. The divine nature and the human nature do not mix together to form some third substance or a new nature. No, the Bible is clear and our catechism is clear. One person, two natures. Not two persons, two natures. One person, two natures. And the reason I'm laboring this language is because there is a whole list of ancient heresies that will somehow contradict one of those things that I said. And that's why I'm stressing the language, one person, two natures. So, who is this mediator, one person, two natures? Question 18, our Lord Jesus Christ. And this leads me to my second point, the plan of Christ, or the goal of Christ coming to earth. Verse 18 makes clear Jesus was given for our complete deliverance and righteousness. Now notice those two words there, deliverance and righteousness. We need not only be delivered from sin's guilt and sin's power, but we need also to be covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. These two aspects Christ has fulfilled. Christ has come to be the deliverer and our righteousness. For example, in Matthew 1.21, says that he will save his people from their sins. 1 John 2.2, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And finally, in 2 Corinthians, 521, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But notice 
the word in our catechism, that little word, complete, complete. Jesus is not a partial deliverer. He doesn't deliver halfway. He is a complete deliverer. And this is actually one of the areas in which we differ from, our, um, uh, from the Roman Catholics. So, for example, according to Rome, Jesus does not actually die to pay and take away your sins. According to Catholics, Roman Catholics, Jesus' Jesus's righteousness is not imputed to you. They reject both of these, these ideas. In the Roman Catholic scheme of things, they teach that you pay for your own sins. And they often use the analogy of the son breaking the father's window in the shed. The son was playing baseball and hit the ball, shattered his father's window in the shed. And the father said, I forgive you, son, but you will pay for every window that you have ever broken. And that's how they describe purgatory. We must, uh, Jesus bought his forgiveness, but we will pay for every sin we've ever committed in the fires of purgatory. And that scheme of things cancels out, I think, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It makes Jesus a partial Savior. They also teach that righteousness is somehow given to us by infusions and it's losable and we get glimpses and, 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 and more and more through various works and sacramental involvement in these things, rejecting the imputation of Christ's righteousness by faith alone. The catechism deflects that idea with one word, complete. Christ removes our sins as far as east is from the west. He was our substitute upon the cross. He took the punishment that we deserved in our place. The sin of all the elect nailed to the cross of Christ. And this is that gospel message, that Christ has died for sin, that his righteousness is offered to you by faith alone. The gospel of Jesus Christ, moreover, is not a new thing. It's not wasn't invented a few hundred or thousand years ago, but it goes all the way back to the beginning of creation. And this leads to my third point, the trans-testamental gospel. There have been those in church history that have tried to divide the Old Testament and the New Testament. They want to divide the old and the new. And they say things like, well, in the Old Testament, people were saved by the law and works. And in the New Testament, we have the gospel. And we're saved by the gospel in the new. And, and those poor people in the Old Testament were saved by, by works of the law. And they have a radical break, and they don't see the gospel in the Old Testament. But the Catechism is eager to show that the gospel of Jesus Christ is transtestamental, meaning it spans both testaments from the Garden of Eden to the book of Revelation. There is one gospel, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Genesis 3.15 is often called the Proto-Evangelium because it is the very first promise of Jesus Christ. One day Christ will come and crush the head of Satan. And from there, 
the patriarchs like Abraham declare, we see the gospel being declared, Genesis twenty two eighteen. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. We see the prophets of old declaring the gospel in Micah seven nineteen. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Not only this, but Jesus is typified and prefigured in the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. We see, for example, the Passover that the Jews celebrated, pointed and typified Jesus Christ. Paul calls Christ our Passover. The Passovers in the Old Testament pointing to the greater Passover in Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is all over the Bible. The Old Testament and the New Testament are Christian scriptures with one harmonious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Note these words by Paul in the opening book of, of Romans. Paul begins Romans with these words. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now notice what Paul is saying in the opening of the book of Romans. The gospel was promised beforehand in the scriptures, and by this he's speaking primarily about the Old, the Old Testament. The Old Testament scriptures contain the gospel. And what did the gospel concern? Paul is clear. The Old Testament gospel concerned the Son of God, Jesus Christ. This means that Genesis, Leviticus, the Psalms, Isaiah, Daniel, Second Chronicles, all of it concerns the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's fascinating that in the gospel of Luke, Jesus is, 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 uh, uh, rises again from the dead. And he speaks to his disciples. And what do you think he does? He has a Bible study. And you think, he, you just rose again from the dead. And now you're having a Bible study with your disciples. And in Luke chapter 24, Jesus shows them how he is the meaning of every book in the Old Testament. In the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, he showed his disciples, this is all about me. This is how you interpret those books. Moses spoke of me. The gospel is from the Garden of Eden onward. Jesus is not a surprise ending to a mystery novel. Jesus was not absent from the people in the Old Testament. No, the Old Testament and the New Testament, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Old Testament saints had a forward-looking faith. They were longing to the coming Messiah. The New Testament saints look back to what Christ has done, and we eagerly await his second return. The gospel of Jesus is intrinsic to the Old Testament. And not only is Jesus the subject of the Old Testament, but he's the goal and the climax of the Old Testament. So friends, what 
the Catechism presents to us on this Lord's Day is nothing other than the Gospel of Christ. Fully man to die, fully God to conquer, in one person, Jesus Christ, given to us to deliver us from our sins, given to us to be our own righteousness. This was promised in the Garden of Eden. It happened 2,000 years ago, and it's offered to us today. So friends, when you doubt in your minds, when you wonder if, if you're saved, when you're not sure about God's love for you, remember that one little word, complete. Complete. Christ is your complete deliverance and righteousness. Amen.